and open up to Ephesians 6 because uh, we're, we're, in, we're in the Word. We're a Word-based church. We preach the Bible. The Word we know is our, is our very life. The bread of life for, for hungry, hungry Christians in the midst of mission. And uh, going through Ephesians, we now find ourselves in uh, chapter 6 in Paul's admonition uh, at, the, at the, the, the door or at, at the end of his letter. He's admonishing the Ephesian church and the other churches that will be receiving this letter beyond them. He's admonishing them to maintain always and ever a, a mission, a militant, a warfare mindset around the Christian life. This is, this is not just one theme among many themes that Paul uses uh, of the Christian life. This is, this is down to the very essence of what it is to be a Christian, is to be somebody that is saved by Jesus, who was formerly an enemy, saved by him, and turned into an obedient servant on mission, waging war with and for Jesus Christ. So we're going to read from chapter 6, and we're just going to start back at verse 10 as we continue through tonight on this list of what Paul calls the armor of God. What a beautiful and wonderful thought to think that in our battles, we are given the very armor forged by, worn by God, given to us for whatever spiritual needs we have. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Take therefore up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. May God bless the reading of His own inerrant, powerful Word in our midst this evening. We start here with, with the helmet. Uh, it's called the, the helmet of salvation, as, as, as Paul encourages us and exhorts us uh, by telling us that God has made available certain things in this Christian life that if we take them up, we will be enabled, we will be powerful, we will be sufficient to fight the spiritual battle. Now, I know we represent all sorts of backgrounds and traditions or denominations in this church where you might have grown up or, or spent a couple of years in your teenage years or maybe you've come more recently from certain backgrounds that might, that might obsess, just obsess over this idea, a wrongful idea, but obsess over this certain conception of spiritual warfare that makes everything an exorcism that makes everything a demon and that makes everything uh, uh, require some kind of miraculous intervention from God on your behalf in an amazing way, a vision, a trance, a tongue or something like that. And, and, and what we find, and so when I start talking about spiritual warfare, fighting the devil, working as, as mission agents for Jesus, you might start getting maybe something like PTSD, or you start reeling back a little bit. I, I came to a reformed church 
This wasn't what I was here for. Not looking for the oil. Not looking for the, for the exorcisms. No shaking on the ground. Please, not, not what I came for. But we see in Paul's understanding that all of this, on one hand, is reality. It's not just a word picture. It's absolute, actual Christian reality. This, this idea of intense spiritual warfare against an actual personalized enemy with an actual force. It's We're actually engaged in it. And yet, on the other hand, as we've been breaking it down and applying it to our lives, we've realized, I hope you realized, that this is pretty much the bread and butter 101 of Christian living. It's really come down to things like knowing the gospel, understanding the Bible, being ready to teach and share the gospel to others. Uh, we're going to get pretty soon as uh, uh, next week as we look at the, the ground attack and airstrike methods of spiritual warfare, it's, it's very little more than evangelism and prayer. We see that these are, and so my, 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 my aim in saying this is not to, not to just water it all down and say it's just not all that fanciful. Oh, friends, what I'm saying is that the ordinary is the extraordinary. You just coming to church, just attending, reading Bible, just praying together, just fellowshipping. We went home, I shared a gospel tract, I had a few conversations with people, I prayed for somebody in need. I mean, and we went to Bible study and just sort of went through the lines and went on home. Tried, tried my darndest this week to not sin, I repented when I did and, and then came back to church for a refilling. Sounds really boring. That is a majestic, amazing, dare I say mystical reality of spiritual warfare. You are engaged in it if you are a maturing, faithful, ordinary Christian. And so Paul is, is weaving and baptizing our whole, whole life and mindset into the warfare scenario. And today he says, take up the helmet of salvation here in verse 17. There's two things I want to point out about this helmet. One, that it is, it is a knowledge of our salvation. We're calling it the, the helmet of salvation. Uh, it is on one hand knowledge about our salvation that protects our most vital organ, our, our mind. It informs everything that we think and do and say. The helmet of the knowledge of salvation. And then secondarily, we will look at the fact that it is also, uh, it is also a, the hope of our salvation, which is a helmet to us, and then we'll move to the sword. But look first, uh, let, let's think first about the, the present reality of the knowledge of our salvation. And we can do this by going back to the beginning of Ephesians. I, I want you to go with me to Ephesians 1, and we're going to go through a few verses, four or five, and remind ourselves what Paul has told us salvation is. Let's, let's put on this helmet of salvation by thinking about, defining, remembering, recalling together what salvation is, and then strapping it on to our spiritual noggins and craniums for our spiritual safety. First of all, look in chapter 1, verse 4. <coughs> Speaking of salvation, he says that we've been blessed. Verse 4, even as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world. That is to say, as, as we begin this knowledge of salvation, you need to realize this is something that started long before you ever put your hand up and made a decision for Christ. This salvation that we're talking about, that you have entered into, didn't start when you got saved. Your salvation didn't start when you entered salvation. Rather, this salvation that you have been engrafted into has been at play since before 
just before, since before, since before time, before there was any such thing as seconds clicking on a clock, for eternity past, God had chosen those who would be saved. If you're saved, then God has chosen you from eternity past and your experience of salvation. Your believing in Christ and being saved is just you entering in from your perspective into a salvation that God has been working at for thousands of years, in fact, for all eternity. So this salvation is something that is much bigger than you or I. Look at verse 22 in chapter 1. Verse 22 says this, God has put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. So, so that as we think of being saved now, we, we need not think of it simply as me holding tightly onto a life raft until I die. We need not think of it simply as, a, as, as something that we do in order to stay on the lifeboat with Jesus, but rather it is so much more organic, intimate, intricate, powerful than that that you are a member of his body and he has been given as head to all those that believe in him so that we are engrafted into him. In other words, I'm his responsibility. Your salvation is ultimately Jesus' responsibility. You may fail, very true. Your faith may be weak, absolutely. You may sin and you will. Jesus doesn't lose body parts. Okay, they, they ripped it off, ripped his skin off him when he was on earth the first time. They don't rip stuff, organs and members of his own body off of him anymore. He is perfect, undefiled, immutable, powerful, strong man, or as Isaiah 57 pictures him, the divine warrior. We are all engrafted to him, and he won't lose you. Your salvation is, a, is being joined to Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Paul goes on. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. That is to say that this salvation we're talking about is a partaking in or a entering into a victory over sin and a victory over death that you are currently entered into now. In other words, though we are not physically resurrected yet, You're not waiting for a day that you beat death. As a Christian, you have entered into salvation, meaning, if 2 verse 5 means anything, that you have already started, you have have already dipped into, you you have one foot, I'll, I'll say it more, you have two feet planted on a raised from the dead reality. You're already permanently untouchable by death. We could say it this way, the Christian doesn't die. The Christian who has placed their faith in Jesus, been united to him and made alive with Christ, never dies. He may downcycle his body into dust, and when he comes back, he, he upcycles and get a be- gets a better, renovated, glorified body, but the Christian, in the truest sense of what death is, never dies. We, we have, in, in this experience of our life, when you place your faith in Christ, maybe at a young age, you don't even remember when that was maybe recently, and you're a pretty new convert, maybe, maybe a few years back in young adult uh, times, whenever it was, when you placed your faith in Jesus, you became a new, spiritually living new creation, a, a, a born-again soul with Christ. So that this resurrected soul uh, reality that you have 
is not distinct from Christ. It's, it's not as if he, he sprinkles some, some spiritual resurrection dust onto all people who believe in him. It is really just coming back to that original idea. We've been engrafted into him, and he is our resurrection. We are alive in as much as he is alive. Let me say it this way. You are as killable. Your soul, your spiritual life is as subject to death as Christ is sitting in heaven, which is to say not at all. The life you now live, you live by your, uh, your involvement and in being joined to Jesus Christ. So look at the next verse, chapter 2, verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wow. What we've realized is that all those who are saved, they are individuals who partook of Christ's death. You died with him at Calvary. You partook in Christ's resurrection. You raised with him on that Easter Sunday. And you are ascended with him. We all raised with him and are now seated in heaven with God. Wherever Jesus is, you are. If we were to define salvation as one word then, it's, it's just Jesus. That's what your, your salvation, Calvin had this amazing way of putting it. He says, the gospel, salvation, is not something that Jesus comes to us and gives. Jesus doesn't come to us and give us righteousness. He doesn't come to us and find us in our sin and give us forgiveness. He doesn't see weak and failing Christians and give us some sanctification and give us some eternal life. Rather, Calvin says this, that the gospel is Jesus Christ himself clothed with all of his promises. We, we don't get a righteousness. We have Jesus who is our righteousness. You don't get eternal life. You get Jesus, and in him is our source of eternal life. In other words, if we are to know about our salvation in order to strap on this helmet the, and, and tighten it that we are ready for spiritual battle, it is simply this, a deep, abiding, true knowledge of Jesus Christ and all that he is for us in the gospel according to scripture. Do you know Jesus? Do you, do you understand what the scripture says about the promises of God held out to you on one condition? And that condition being something that God fills for you, which is spirit-given faith. To know Jesus is to know our salvation. To know our salvation is to have an impenetrable helmet upon us that gives us certainty and assurance. The second idea of this of this salvation helmet, is the hope of salvation. That is, that as we speak now of, of what salvation is, a, a, a freedom from the overpowering rule of sin, Christians really can walk, walk in holy ways. It is a freedom from the condemnation of sin. You are no longer guilty before God. It is a, it is a gift of the Spirit. And all these things we could say, there's a way that Paul also speaks of salvation in a future sense. It's been said like this. If you're a Christian, you have been saved. You were saved. The past tense. The moment you placed your faith in Jesus, you were saved. It's another sense in which you are being saved. That as Jesus rescues you from your terrible plans, you thought they were great, they're terrible. As Jesus saves you from, from the power of sin and, and makes you more and more holy, as Jesus saves you from demonic attack or spiritual warfare or, or enemies set against you, you are being saved, present tense. That's till you die. And then there is a time that we will be saved. 
We will be saved from the sinful world in our death going to heaven. We will be saved even further from our, from our uh, uh, incorporeal body uh, uh, reality when we get our body back. That's another sense of salvation. You were saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. And it's this sense of our will being saved that Paul picks up in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. He says this, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. It's, it's a slightly different twist on this idea of helmet of salvation, but it's, it's very much in the same vein. Because faith and hope, uh, a knowledge of our salvation, and, and a hope in what will be to come, are just, they're just the difference of ED. They're just the difference of tense. We know our salvation... And then to, to know and believe by faith what our salvation will give to us, that's all hope is. Faith in future promises. So Paul goes on to say this in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. For a helmet, the hope of salvation, for, here's why, you can have a hope of salvation, an optimistic, joyful, glad to be alive, bring on tomorrow, the future is great, God is awesome, hope for tomorrow, here's why, for... God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, in other words, living or dead in this world, we might live through him. He is speaking of the future salvation, of the future outpouring of the wrath of God. And for the Christian, the greatest hope that the apostle can instill you with is this thought. God has destined you to bypass every drop of the terrible, horrible, outpouring wrath of the Lamb on the day of judgment. You won't taste a drop of it. That is hope. That is a helmet that allows us to take on tomorrow. That is a helmet that allows us to, 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 to be confident in whatever comes. Come what may, we trust Christ. We know our salvation to be a reality. We are saved from sin and hell, saved by God in Christ, saved through his death on the cross for our sins, and we are saved to holiness, mission, and then eternal life. Now let's get into Paul's mindset a little bit. When he writes to Ephesians, to, to, to Ephesus, to the Ephesian church, he's not engaging with or responding to an error or sin. There's, there's some books that he is. He, he has to, the, 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 the Colossian heresy that he has to uh, address in Colossae or, or the, the, the drifting away from the gospel to works-based righteousness in Galatians. We, we don't have that in Ephesus. It's not the case that he's writing to somebody, to a church caught in heresy, or to a pastor that's being swayed by false teaching or sin. It's not the case. Rather, in Ephesus, Paul is writing to a church with an amazing spiritual pedigree. They were planted in the midst of Paul's longest church planting uh, season of his career in Ephesus. Acts 19. They were planted in response to an enormous revival that broke out in the capital city of the east of the empire. 
They were, they were planted, this church, from, out of some of the most amazing situations. A, a, a revival among the, 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 the black magic worshippers. A, a riot was, was thrown in the streets because of this church's success in mission warfare. They have an amazing spiritual pedigree. And, and Paul spent a lot of time there. Then his protege, Timothy, came. Titus appears there later on uh, as well. And then Paul, uh, John the Apostle, rather, he spends time in the Ephesian church, so tells us, from, uh, so church history tells us. This is a church with an amazing pedigree, no widespread heresy and destruction. And it seems more that Paul is writing to them, not to correct an error, but to ensure that their salvation spurs them on into mission and doesn't become a, 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 a still, dead, algae-ridden pond. Paul is, is, in other words, we could use this analogy, Paul wants salvation for them to be a helmet, not a trophy. Not a, tr- a trophy sits still. Like, unless you've got a, an unfortunate burglar into your pool room, rarely is a trophy ever going to be a, be a weapon of any kind. So most of the time, trophies just sit still. They don't, they don't do anything. All that they do is remind you how awesome you are. Look at you winning softball in grade 8. My goodness, wow. Academic excellence in grade 12 at a state school. They're just handing those things out now anyway. Right? A, a trophy stands there and reminds you of past excellencies. It does nothing to spur you on. It does nothing to actually equip you for anything in the future. Don't, don't think that taking your trophy to a, to a job interview is going to do you any good. It does you no good. Many people think of their salvation in, in relationship like a trophy. They, they, they think of the amazing things that happened. They, they remember their conversion. They, they enjoy the, the, the reminders about what happened when their life turned around. And it stands there in their path like a trophy reminding them of standstill realities. But a helmet is taken. It may be just a shiny. It may be gold. It, it may be beautiful just like a, like a trophy. And yet it doesn't allow you to stand still and look at it and think about it and remember things. Rather, it is a, it is a reminder in itself. It is a, an empowering thing that assures you, that gives you confidence to run headlong into the enemy's front line. Are you maybe thinking of your salvation in terms of a trophy rather than a helmet? It reminds you that you're pretty impressive. Or, like a helmet, does it remind you that your armor maker is impressive? Does it lead you to sit still, admiring the salvation that God wrought in the past? Or does it reassure you to charge forward confidently? I, I once knew a guy who had, been, who had been converted out of amazing circumstances. A, what, I, I, it, it, there's not enough time to tell the story of his near miraculous conversion, the turnaround of his life, the persecution that poured down upon him, and the way that God saved him both physically and situationally, miraculously bringing him to Jesus Christ in faith here in this church. And he was under, uh, he was converted through an amazing preacher. Uh, uh, not me, I'm not doing that. Another preacher in this church, a, a favorite of mine. And, and at the time, the Lord was just doing amazing things. And then months passed. And this person lost their, 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 their vigor. 
They lost their, their energy and their zeal. And, and I sat down with him and I asked him, what's, what's happening to you? You know, I, I want to be an encouragement, brother, to keep on striving for it. Oh, brother, let me, let me tell you, God's amazing. And, and always, he would just go back to what God did for him. What God did for him. The, don't you remember what God did for me? The, the situations, the, the occurrences. Oh, God's good, brother. It's like, yes, brother, he is. But he saved you for mission. We talk, and I'd, I'd put encouragements down, and he'd go, oh, 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 the remembering, the, the recalling, the looking at the, the wonderful testimony, the, 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 the book-worthy testimony and conversion story that he had, and slowly, less church attendance. Slowly, the backsliding nature of serving less. Hardly able to get the spiritual energy of a walk. No evangelism. Less prayer. Hardly being seen in the saints of God. Is this you? That your salvation is something God gave and like a trophy, it, it sits there and it's amazing. It was a great preacher, awesome sermon. I'm in a great church. Oh, the, the past glories of Reformation truth and things that God has done. Maybe you were saved in a revival. I don't know. But none of that matters. Is your salvation a helmet which is planted on your head, which gives you confidence for the future and gives you assurance to run headlong into enemy fire for the sake of Jesus? Our, hel our helmet is a knowledge of and hope in salvation. The rest of the verse goes on to tell us that we need to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This, this is not, uh, uh, there's two words in, in, in the Greek for different swords. One of them is the, is the large, thick, broad sword that you'd wield with two, two hands. In, in it's not that one. It's actually the Makera. If you're a sword nerd, I don't care if I said it right, but that's, that, that, that's what uh, uh, pronunciation.com told me, okay? The Makera, and, and it was more of a, it was the everyday battle sword. It was the hand-to-hand -hand combat sword, not, not the sword that you'd, you'd wield while, while riding a large horse on cavalry through, through, the, through the army, but rather hand-to-hand, -hand, ugly combat, covered in each other's blood, mud up to your knees, that kind of battle was marked by this Makira sword. And Paul says that our sword is the word of God. This is why he calls it the sword of the spirit. Because the word of God kept for us in the 66 books of the canon of scripture, this word of God for us has been inspired by the spirit through prophets and apostles of old. It has been preserved by the Spirit now throughout history so that while there may be jots and tittles here and there that are not entirely perfect from the original manuscript, all of God's intended necessary truths have been so preserved miraculously by God throughout history that we have here a true representation, a true copy and preservation of God's inspired word written by the Spirit, preserved by the Spirit, and then it is wielded by the Spirit. That is that in life, it is not enough to merely have head knowledge. It is not merely enough when the devil attacks, when temptation rears its head. It's not enough to know the Bible, but rather we must be wielding the Spirit, wielding the Word rather, in a spiritual way. Think Maybe as Reformed Christians especially, but, but as Christians we can forget this. We may think that there's the unconverted guy, the unconverted gal. And when they pick up scripture, oh, they're like the Pharisee. It has, it's like a soft foam sword without any real penetrating, killing power, of course, because they're unconverted. 
But once you're a Christian, as long as you know the Bible, it's always to your utmost benefit. It's always powerful in the day of battle, and that's not the case. There is such a way that we can allow our sword to rust so that it sticks in the scabbard. There is such a way that we may know how to use it and what to do and what pages or verses we might turn to, and yet the Word of God in our mind and heart, as temptation is rearing its head, is powerless. We, we can't get it out of the scabbard. It's, it's rusted in place. It, it has no ability to divide and slice and cut and kill. And so our temptation, maybe we know the most we've ever known. Maybe, maybe you're grasping truth more than you ever have in your past, and yet... And yet, you are the most weak you have been in a long time against sin and temptation. This is a matter of you knowing the Spirit's word, but not utilizing and swinging the sword with the Spirit's help. Are you yielded? Are you yielded to the Spirit in prayer, in holiness, in earnestness, in repentance? Do you have a white-hot, reliant zeal in your soul? Then... You can, wheel, you can th- swing around this sword by the Spirit's help. There's a, there's a, I, I got to push back on this at least a little bit. If nothing else, for a bit of fun. Let's all do this together. I won't get to, you to show a hand, uh, uh, show your hands, but I know that some of us are familiar with this Rima Logos distinction in the Greek around the Word of God. Now, here's where it, 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 all, all this, in, in coming into the English, the Greek words for the Word of God. Often it's logos, the logos of God, the, the meaning the word of God. Other times it's used of the, the rima of God. Uh, the, the rima is, a, is another Greek word for word. And what some hack theologian did at some point in the last 150 years is come up with this theory that because rima means most of the time, well, not most of the time, but some of the time, it, it is more used for the, for the language of spoken word. The spoken word of God is the rima, or the, or the speaking of the word is the rima, and the written words is the logos. Now, that's not even true. That, that is, it is true that that is sometimes the case. It is not an exclusive distinction in Scripture, but here's the theory they came up with. The logos is the written word of God in the Bible. The rima is when God takes some of that word of God, places it in your heart, and tells you, this is for you in the moment. So that you might know the Bible, but that's not enough. God has to come and of his own own empowering, give you a power in the moment for that then to apply to you. Or they say that you might have a a scripture given, a a verse in your heart, a, a word of Jesus in the Gospels or something that has no exegetical or expositional accuracy to the moment you're in. But God doesn't care about that when he's operating in the Rima. He's giving you a, a word for the moment and, and this is the, the, the breath of the Spirit giving you the word of God. No, no just, just throw that. Maybe you've never come across it. Bless you. This is one of the curses of being a pastor is just knowing all the idiotic stuff that people are taught and that go on out there. Let's throw that out. Here's the reality. The word of God, Rima or Logos, whatever it may be, the word of God, the truths of the scripture given to us must be, wield, must be a, 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 a yielded to and wielded by the Spirit. Be attuned with the Spirit, that the word of the Spirit might be made effective and sharpened in our day of battle. And don't read those Rima Logos posts. Just don't do it. Save your time. Rather, 
We know that the Word of God, rightly understood, is the, is the sword of the Spirit in the moment. Now, now, we'll go into a few ways that this, that this sort, of, sort of applies, but there's, there's a great story that came out of the Reformation. And it's probably true. That's good enough for me. I'll say it like it is. There's this story of Martin Luther, who, who in, the, in the evil day, I mean, if there was ever a man in the throes of spiritual attack, for the sake of the glory of God, the purity of the church, and the word of Christ, it was Luther. And, and, and he had been fighting the world of, of, the, of Christendom, the, the Catholic church that he was fighting in order to publish and defend the truths of the gospel of being saved by faith alone. And there's this, there's this reality that as you read his biographies and his stories and his sermons, he just had a living awareness. We might think it's because he was the unenlightened medieval monk that he was. I think he was just more in, t- in tune with reality than we are. He just knew there were goblins, demons, and devils that chased him through life. Sometimes he's just walking around in the dark praying, and he'll say something like, you know, and the goblins jumped out and chased me out of the woods. He, he wasn't schizophrenic. He's just aware of the fact that the devil has all sorts of different ways and different cultures, times, and days of, of, of utilizing his demonic realm, and, and he was pretty in tune with it. And, and Luther was an attack because he was a general in the army of God. And there's this story that he's, he's writing out, and he's translating Bible, and he's writing sermons and lectures and whatnot and in, in, in this tower, in his study, and the devil himself appears to him, and the devil just, just frustrate. Uh, sorry, Luther, just frustrated by, by the, the frequency and the annoyance of the devil's visitations, he, he takes up his, ink, his inkwell by which he was writing, and he threw it at the devil in utter frustration. And to this day, in Luther's study, which is now somewhat of a museum, there stands a large ink blot on the wall. Yes, he fought the devil with ink. That was one time. Most of the time, Luther says, he fought the devil with the word of God and sometimes flatulence. Okay, not all of us went to, went to tertiary education and know that big word. Uh, it's, it's, it's the passing of wind. Now, we know, history tells us, Luther had terrible gut problems. And it was a, let's just say he had plenty of ammo, if that's how he's going to fight his spiritual battles. But that he, he, he would fight the, the devil and all of his demons that would visit him or afflict him with thoughts. And he said he would just throw the darts of the word. He would, he would just slice them away and, and shush them away with the knowledge of the gospel and the truth of the Bible. And he would shush them away. And then he said, and if I felt like humiliating the devil, I would fart in his direction. He had this, this, just this almost juvenile, but hilarious for a scholar, this, this understanding that the devil has been so put to shame by the truth of the gospel that that becomes appropriate. Only, only alone, not a Bible study thing, all right? No, not with your mates, don't do that. But, but alone, that would be how he would fight him, with the, the simple declaration that he's not even worth a word from my mouth. I'll send him to the other end. Luther did that, but mostly, let's return to the point of tonight, Mostly he fought the devil and all of his temptations with the word of God. He would recite scripture to, sh- to push away the devil. He would, he would recite scripture in order to throw away the temptations that came against him. The word of God, rightly understood and rightly applied, is what Paul means by the sword of the spirit. Now go to Matthew chapter 4. We see Jesus do just precisely this. And, and I want to go to this uh, and drive home what we mean by the word of God, rightly understood and then rightly applied so that we move away from any temptations or or accidental assumptions (coughs) that the word of God is some kind of incantation. 
Just because the word of God is the sword of the spirit, that does not mean that whether it applies or not, whether you understand it or not, you can just chant Bible out and demons will be kept away from you. You can just print, and I've known Christians, print out Bible verses on the car, keeping you safe, hedge of protection, under the, under the, under the, the pillow as you sleep are these printed Bible verses to keep your, your, your brain safe from, the, from, from demonic dreams, uh, 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 all these sorts of things. Not at all the case. The, the word of God is not, an, is not, a, is not something to be... In, in, uh, is, well, let's go. Let's try again. The word of God is not something to be chanted as if it has some kind of innate chanted uh, uh, magical ability. Rather, the word of God, rightly understood and applied to a situation, is how we swing the sword of the Spirit. So, you're in Matthew 4. I'll get there now. And we look at Jesus as he uh, uh, battled not merely not, not, not temptations coming from within him and not merely the temptations thrown at him by the wiles of, of demons, but the devil himself. We know that after Jesus' baptism, he rose up and the father declared to all those standing by that this is my son. And then the spirit took Jesus out into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days. And this is what we see. Here's our first example, that to, the, to swing the sword of the Spirit is to rightly uh, 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 apply Scripture against temptation. This is what we see first. Verse 1 in chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Obviously, that's a dart. Thank you, Matthew. We could have assumed that. But here Jesus is in the fullness of his humanity, not tapping into his, his divine strength to just switch off his, his hunger receptors, struggling with the very human fatigue of hunger, 40 days, 40 nights. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. That might not sound like an immediate temptation to sin for us as we first read that. When we recognize that Jesus, in his humanity, was marked by submission to the Father's will. This is the overarching rule and characteristic of Jesus' whole life was an obedient Servant. That's what Isaiah tells us. He was obedient. That's what Philippians tells us. Obedient to the point of death. Obedience would mark his whole life. Now, now if at this point he had no command from the Father by which to use his divine miraculous powers to then create stones into bread to fix his hunger, without a command of his Father to do so, his own utilization of his divine powers would be unsubmission. It would be sin. It would be an act of unreliance on the Father to meet his needs. And so the devil says here, use your powers. You're the son. Turn these stones into bread. And look at how Jesus fights here the temptation to do so because he was hungry and he was tempted. He quotes scripture, verse 4. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from from the mouth of God. This is an example of us utilizing the sword of the Spirit in a spiritual way is to utilize it against temptation. 
It may not be a, a spirit, may not be a person in front of you, but when temptation itself arises in your heart and tells you to indulge, tells you it won't be great harm, no one will know, you can get away with it, it'll be such a rush of that, of that dopamine hit of rebellion and enjoyment and pleasure, though that feels true, we take the word of God and we lop the head off of that temptation. John Owen used to say, there is no progression in holiness unless we walk over the bellies of our sins. In other words, he says, spill their guts in front of you until your temptation is dead. You cannot go beyond it. Kill that sin. Don't, don't, don't recite something and walk on. Hope it doesn't come back. Set your mind to the scripture's truths until that sin, that temptation, lies powerless at your feet with no drawing power. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. The word of God, rightly understood, is a sword against temptation. Let me also say that the word of God, rightly understood, is a sword against spiritual beings. That when, when, Maybe it's if for some of us, but, but it's, a, it's, an, it's at least a when when I'm talking to a congregation. When some of us have genuine and legitimate spiritual enemies that are demonic forces, either appear to us, uh, envision themselves upon us, attack us, or otherwise uh, oppress us in that way, when that occurs, the word of God then is to be utilized against them. Like Luther, use whatever other bodily things you want, but at least use the word of God rightly understood. We see Jesus do the same thing. Look at verse uh, look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I, I think that at that moment, it's already miraculous because he's, there's no mountain in, in, in Israel that he could be showing him from that he sees any more than a single kingdom. Probably there is some kind of miraculous uh, uh, spiritual vision that he is giving to him where he can see all kinds of kingdoms in all the Roman Empire and beyond. I think also, if you're asking my opinion, and I've got the microphone, so I'll pretend you did, is that he's also showing him beyond time, not just the moment that he lives in, but all of the kingdoms that would ever profess faith in Jesus, all of the kingdoms that would, that would ever be, be populated by human beings in all of history. He was looking on ancient Babylon as much as future America and the British Empire. Jesus saw everything that the devil tempted to give him. Look what he says. Verse 9, the devil said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus says, this is where it becomes a personal confrontation between Christ and a spiritual being. He says, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. I know that this will be rare, probably for most of us, but in the occurrences of, of a probable or a definite spiritual appearance unto us, we have the word of God as a sword against which the demons have no defense as long as it is understood rightly, and swung by the Spirit. So that look at the effect, verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of God, rightly understood, is a defense against temptation. 
It is an offensive weapon against spiritual beings, but also it is a, it is a weapon to be used in a, and applied to a situation. So look also at Matthew 4, at the second temptation of Christ in verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike a foot against a stone. Do you see why I'm emphasizing that the sword of the Spirit is only the sword of the Spirit if it's rightly understood? The devil likes using Scripture as long as he redefines it and as long as you don't know any better. As long as you don't know your Scripture well, he can say a few things that sound kind of scriptural. He might even quote something out of context at you. So it is not Scripture itself as if it's something to be chanted with some innate power. It is that as the Word of God is rightly understood and then utilized in situations, it is a weapon against temptation, a weapon against spiritual beings, but also a word that can be applied to a situation. And Jesus does that here. He says in verse 7, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is this amazing divine warrior as pictured by Isaiah that put on his breastplate of righteousness, Isaiah uh, uh, 57, and he put on his breastplate, rather 52 verse 17, puts on his breastplate of righteousness, puts on his helmet of salvation, and goes and wins salvation for us by his, his defeat of the devil's temptations, his remaining perfect, and then his complete submission to God in his going to the cross to die for our sins, and then being empowered by God to be raised from the dead, finally defeating death and placing him at the throne of God's right hand. Therefore, Jesus is the great spiritual warrior that calls us to follow in his example after we have received his salvation. Jesus won salvation for us. We don't win salvation. But being saved, we then keep on getting saved from temptation, spiritual beings, and Sinful situations. Deuteronomy 32, the, the book that Jesus was quoting when he defeated the devil in the desert. Deuteronomy 32 says this, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, so that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word that I speak to you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live. Do you know the word enough to be able to use it as a sword in the moment without preparation? When the devil swings against you, when a situation closes in around you, when temptation comes up to your very neck, is the word of God in your hands and in your heart so that you can swing it for your rescue in the moment? Do you call it to mind to slay temptation, send off the devil, and direct your steps? Luther says that the word of God is a sword against false doctrine. He especially talks about false gospel. Listen to what he says. It is the supreme art of the devil that he can make law out of the gospel. That is, that he can make Christians saved by grace try and relate to God on the basis of how well my obedience is going. 
Oh, that's the supreme art of the devil. You think that's just a little confusion? No, that's the art of the devil to convince Christians they need to earn for something that has been freely given in Christ Jesus, which is forgiveness. It's the supreme art of the devil, that he can make law out of gospel. If I can hold on to the distinction between law and gospel, I can say to him any and every time that he should kiss my backside. I love Luther. I just love Luther. If you can hold fast to the gospel, that every time he comes to you to tempt you into false doctrine and a false sense of believing, you can tell him, exactly, I won't say it again, I'm a pastor, I'm not allowed to. Say what Luther said. Send him running and defile him. Hodge says, Charles Hodge, a great uh, commentator and theologian says, in opposition to all error, to all philosophy of falseness, to all false principles and morals, to all sophistries of vice, to all the suggestions of the devil, the sole, simple, and sufficient answer is the word of God. This puts to flight all the powers of darkness. The Christian finds this to be true in his individual experience. It dissipates his doubts. It drives away his fears. It delivers him from the power of Satan. This is the word of God. That is why we preach the word. That is why we spend all of our time seeking to understand God's promises in his word because it is our weapon. John Bunyan, some of you will have read uh, the Pilgrim's Progress that John Bunyan, the great Reformed Baptist preacher and evangelist, wrote while he was in prison because of his preaching without a government-signed license. What a guy. Years in prison, he wrote it away, and he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, an allegorical, poetic imagery of a man named Christian walking out of, out of the city of destruction, going on this long, arduous journey towards the city of celestial lights. It's, a, it's an allegory for the Christian life. And there's this scene where he's in the, in the, in, in the valley of despond, I believe it is, and, and, and the valley of humiliation, and the devil... Apollyon, he is called in Revelation. The devil, this, this disgusting creature, comes upon him to fight him. And Bunyan utilizes and adopts the language of Ephesians 6. Apollyon met Christian. Now, the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish. He had wings like a dragon, feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke, and his mouth was like that of a lion. He starts to try and tempt Christian then and try and convince him to go back to the city of destruction. And, and Christian stands firm and says, I will go, even if I have to go through you, I'm not going back to your tyranny. And then Apollyon, espying his opportunity, began to gather up closer to Christian. And then he wrestled with him and gave him a dreadful fall. And with that, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I am sure of thee now. And with that, he had almost pressed him to death under his feet, so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching his last blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man, Christian nimbly stretched out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. And with that, he gave a deadly thrust, which, get, which, which made him give back and Apollyon fall as one that had received a mortal wound. Christian, 
perceiving that, made at him again, saying, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And at that, Apollyon spread forth his dragon's wings and sped him away, that Christian for a season saw him no more. How is your sword? Is it ready at hand? Is it sharpened, well-oiled in the scabbard, not rusting, but ready at hand? So that what John says to us in 1 John 2, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Friends, with, with a knowledge of salvation as a helmet, and the word of God as our weapon, you have everything you need to live a godly, victorious life in Christ. The devil has no victory over you. Your sin will not need to have patterns of, of, of power over you. You have everything you need to live a godly, Christ-like life now. And there are others of us, of course, here right now that have no helmet and that have no sword. You are, you are unbelievers. You know yourself to be so. You're not a Christian and you don't want to be or, or, or you're not here to get converted or, or, or you know you're not but you fear for death or, and wherever you may be, you stand here and because you're not saved, because Jesus has not made you born again, has not given you spiritual life and has not given to you a helmet and a sword, you stand vulnerable to all of the devil's attacks and most of all, vulnerable to death itself, which will take you into hell. And if you have no sword and no helmet then, let me give them to you in the true good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God, the great warrior, the mighty one, God himself, eternal and infinite, came into our nature, into our humanity, not just to fight the battles and win that we never could, but also to then go and procure and purchase our salvation at the cost of his own blood on the cross of Calvary so that any weak, defiled, sinful, rebellious people can be taken up out of the, the devil's hands, can be taken up out of the darkness of the devil's kingdom and brought to God himself in Christ. You can be forgiven in this moment. You are promised forgiveness, remission of sins, cleansing, and then an empowerment and an armory so that Jesus will never lose you. He will never let go of you. He will never be done with you until he has brought you home to himself in heaven. That is his promise. Take that as a shield. Take that as a helmet. Take that as a sword. Take on the breastplate of Christ's own righteousness for you. This is the gospel promise of God. Let's pray. Father God, we ask, and we ask more than mere formal prayers, we ask more than merely by habit of closing out a sermon, we beg you, God, please strengthen us against our spiritual enemies. Though we fall, we shall rise. Rejoice not over us, O mine enemy. Father God, we are weaker than we wish we were. Every born-again Christian, we are weaker than we wish we were. We are less holy than we wish we were. We are less effective and productive for the mission than we wish we were. And we pray, Lord God, that according to your promise, you would be gracious with us, not to hold our sins against us, but also that you would be gracious to empower us, as, as David writes in the Psalms, that you would train our hands for war, that we would be able to, to see Jesus on Judgment Day with a great life filled with service, faithful, bold, zealous service. Father God, some of us are in, in the throes of trials, difficult situations and temptations, and we ask you, Lord God, that you would give to them the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, that they would take it up being ready 
to apply your word to their life, to be able to trust and rely on you and hope in you because of the salvation that they've received as a gift. Father God, others who are, who are in the throes of spiritual attack and, and mission and evangelizing and seeking to win souls, Father God, may that be all of us. Will you give to us the, the full armory of Christ that we need to be able to be effective in prayer, in, in evangelism, in winning of souls? Father God, I pray for anyone today that is not a believer in Jesus Christ, that you would in this moment break their heart, expose to them their own need, give to them faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and save them from all of their sins and your own wrath. Father God, would you be so gracious in our midst to give this gift. Sanctify your name in our midst. Glorify your son for it is in his glorious, victorious name that we pray. All of these things. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.